This is Gridlocked, the podcast exploring why the 21st century is broken and how to fix it. Welcome to season one, Energy. is going to be just fine without humanity. (laughs) Earth doesn't need us. (laughs) Earth is 4.5 billion years old and the experiment of life worked out pretty well from the earliest life in the oceans to the land now to 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 humans and you know homo sapiens but you know that's not a given. If we self-destruct and obliterate ourselves guess what spaceship Earth is still going to be here and replenish, regenerate, and regrow. So it really then, you know, as humanity, we have to see how we're going to solve this together. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Gridlocked. In this show, we take stock of where we are in terms of the climate emergency against the backdrop of increasing global energy demand. Welcome to our director, Mark Havener, and to our writer and producer, Nick O'Hara. Turning to you first, Nick, tell us who we've just heard from in that introductory narration. Hi, Relaki. That fabulous intro was provided by David Newman, director of MIT Media Lab. David's impressive CV includes being appointed by President Obama to serve as deputy administrator of NASA, which explains her description of our planet as Spaceship Earth. When Mark and I interviewed Deva for the show, together with her great enthusiasm for the media lab she leads, we were struck by the vision, clarity and optimism with which she spoke about the challenges facing humanity. That's excellent. I look forward to hearing more from Deva. So let's get straight into the show. Mark, can you tell us what's first up in the next segment? Sure. Uh, let's start with the global context we're facing right now. And what a better way to start than to look at Earth from outer space. Along with Deva in this first section, we'll also hear from Guillermo Trotti, a space architect whose illustrious career has included being a designer for the International Space Station, among other things. So we're really fortunate, actually, uh, when we go into space. Uh, It only has to be, you know, 400 kilometers up, uh, but we're in orbit. So first you're weightless. And when you look down at beautiful, what I call spaceship Earth, you really get a different perspective. It's actually called the overview effect because now you have an overview of Earth in its entirety. So you're looking down and you see everything connected. You literally see, you know, this beautiful blue planet. But what happens is it erases kind of nation state. It erases the individuality, if you will. And you realize, hey, we're all here on Spaceship Earth and we're all astronauts. So everyone thinks, nope, you have to go into space to be an astronaut. I say, well, that's fantastic. In space, we look down on Earth, we measure and monitor all of Earth's vital signs, but also getting this perspective that for these humanities big challenges, we have to um, solve this together. You know, we're all in the same lifeboat. And uh, one of my dear friends, Nicole Stott, astronaut, now artist, she says, you know, the choice is ours. You're going to be an active participant. Are you going to be an active astronaut, you know, on the Earth? Are you going to be passive? Are going to be passive and let things happen or say, no, we're going to take control of this. We're going to work in the same boat, literally our lifeboat, kind of save ourselves. And a little bit about the literal, besides just being beautiful, looking down on the most beautiful um, planet I can imagine. And I look at 
hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of planets and Earth is quite special and spectacular. Looking down on Earth, we can literally measure and monitor the vital signs. What is the temperature, you know, global temperature in the atmosphere? What is the water temperature, the sea level temperature? What about sea level rising? What, how much carbon dioxide do we have? How much methane in atmosphere? And the day-night cycle. So to me, you really can see this living, breathing Earth. I see Earth as, you know, uh, Mother Nature, as a living, breathing uh, companion. And I want to have a very compassionate relationship. want to have a lot of empathy. want to see, okay, how can we rebalance our natural systems with humans thriving, but all of our natural systems thriving as well. And that's Another way to look at that, again, that's that overview effect when you kind of look at it very, very holistically. And uh, to uh, Buckminster Fuller, he, he famously said, you know, the, the, our job is um, to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without any ecological offense. So I think that's the philosophy. <laughs> it's a big ask. <laughs> Easier said than done. But that really, I think, has to be our mission if we want to thrive. More having been looking at the planet for my whole life from outside, you know, since I was 23 years old, I basically left mentally this planet. You know, when I started to meditate myself into space, looking at the earth, when after we saw those amazing pictures in 1968 of the planet from the moon. So having lived there, having imagined and meditated about this, the planet is number one. We all live in this little blue ball. You know, this little blue uh, sphere uh, is the only one that we know that has the characteristics for us to survive. So everything that we do, I think from now on, given our consciousness, a true understanding and believing the data, you know, that we are losing species at a tremendous rate daily, that we the atmosphere is becoming warmer, hotter, and more polluted every day, that the oceans are acidifying, you know, and filled with microplastics that we're eating, and we're, all of us have microplastics inside of us right now. So we know all these facts. So now we need a radical change to understand a new reality, a new way to build our dreams, where we will be able to build dreams for eternity. In this way, we will not. The planet is fine. The planet has been through millennia. It's been through a lot. You know, there's been many, many uh, devastating periods on this earth where life was almost extinguished mm. naturally. So it's not just us. We are just the latest uh, plague <laughs> to this <laughs> to this planet. Uh, so the the good thing is that we are a conscious being. So we understand what's going on. It's not just like you know, an animal that might be, you know, roaming around and eating itself out of food, out of the planet, or whatever it may be. We are conscious of what we're doing. So we have a choice. So today we have a choice to start doing things differently. And, and we need to do it quickly. That's the main problem we face. Uh, we don't have a lot of time if we believe the science. Uh, we basically have a decade and not much more before we reach this tipping point. Many people think, or some scientists think, that we might have reached that tipping point and that we would not be able to uh, reverse the impact of 
already what we have done to the atmosphere uh, and to the oceans and so on. My optimism comes from observing nature. Uh, the only way I can call myself in a, in a relaxed mode and where I do most of my creative work is in nature, whether I'm alone in the middle of the ocean uh, or whether I'm walking in a jungle uh, or whether I'm diving and, you know, as deep as I can in the ocean and, and, and be one with, with the rest of the environment around me. Because I see constant growth. I, I see constant life generating in the most extraordinary places in that crack in the concrete in the middle of New York City. There's a plant growing. There's a little leaf that really is fighting all the environment and happening. So nature is very resilient, and that's the optimism. It's now we just need to back out and support it and leave it alone in many cases. The, the next seven years are, are critically important. You know, we've, we've had a long time, and so what happens is that... Uh, the climate models are actually uh, conservative. Things are things are happening much quicker than than they even even predict. And so, uh, we had a conversation that was oh twenty one hundred. This is what the world will look like, or even twenty fifty. Uh, I actually like to change the conversation and say no, twenty thirty. 2030. We're on twenty twenty two today, approaching twenty twenty three. So let's talk about the next seven years, because it's a question of how much suffering do we want to endure in the world, how much human displacement. Um, how many lives lost? So that's the necessity of it. So it's less than a decade, I think, in terms of a time scale, because how many people will be displaced? We have climate um, migrants now all over the place. We even can attribute probably a lot of the strife, a lot of war to climate related effects. When people people want to stay home, people want to grow their own food, people want to have a, you know, to be able to be with their families, to be have a nice quality of existence that's typically with families and friends that's what we've learned during this pandemic that people really need each other family friends and support people don't want to have to migrate cross countries uh, look for jobs elsewhere but they're they're forced to especially with the crises you know the natural disasters whether it's fire whether it's flood whether it's drought think about extinction of civilizations they happen when they don't collaborate that is one of the major elements of survival when it comes down to civilizations in the past that have collapsed. As we study that, collaboration and change and be able to adapt is key to survival. So if we don't do anything, if we do not change, this civilization will collapse. I am co almost convinced of that because it's this collaboration that will bring the, solution, the solutions that we need for a better world. And, and without it, we will be stuck with the same practices. It's sort of like, you know, these kind of religions and so on of the past or uh, where they kept doing the same thing over and over and over again and, and, and taking the trees down like what happened in Easter Island, for instance. You know, it, they just absolutely devastating themselves from, you know, uh, for not changing, for not being aware of it. And if they were, they couldn't change. We are aware of it. This is when I, that, that is when I, when I talk to people uh, and have these kind of conversations, is that we know now for a fact, scientifically, that this is a dead end road and that we need to change. Change 
and things will continue to change even if we make take measures today uh, we are going into uh, an unknown situation here in the next next century uh, that could be devastating to the human civilization as we know it from Californian wildfires, Pakistani floods, or hurricanes of increasing ferocity, we're witnessing ever more extreme weather events linked to climate change. Sea levels rise whilst inland reservoirs dry up. Across the world, climate adaption and mitigation measures are being increased. And yet, against this backdrop, and despite all of the public policy rhetoric, incredibly, CO2 emissions continue to rise. Despite every green initiative in the year 2023, we are cramming yet more carbon into Earth's atmosphere, causing global temperature rises which are melting ice caps and glaciers. Given this situation, it seems staggering that coal has been the fastest growing energy source in the 21st century, followed by gas. Even in these supposedly climate-conscious times, burning coal remains the leading source of electricity generation in the world. Currently, 82% of global energy is derived from CO2-emitting fossil fuels. We hear so much in our public discourse about climate catastrophe. It can conjure up a sense of impending doom, like an apocalypse hurtling towards us like a meteor from dark skies above. It threatens to make everything and anything else crossing our minds seem like an irrelevant footnote. Most of us understand that with a climate emergency so real, so immediate and pressing, humanity must act with urgency. Thank you, Nick. What you've just said there is really interesting, and I'm looking at literature from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, otherwise known as the IPPC, which states that, and I quote, human activities are estimated to have caused approximately one degree Celsius of global warming above pre-industrial levels, with a likely range of 0.8 to 1.2 degrees Celsius. Global warming is likely to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius between 2030 and 2052 if it continues to increase at the current rate. Climate-related risks for natural and human systems are higher for global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius than at present. As I read this out, I'm conscious that I may be losing some people. So I think the key point to note is that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 2 degrees Celsius will reduce the impacts significantly. We need to discuss this further, so perhaps I can turn to you, Mark, to introduce our next contributor. Yeah, we're quickly out of our depths when we start looking at climate science, but it's clear we need to understand it because the costs of action and inaction are key here. We interviewed one of the world's leading climate scientists, Carrie Emanuel, Professor Emeritus at MIT, and he walked us through what's at stake. The problem is that we're taking a risk, the tail of which is an existential risk. And let me try to illustrate that. I mean, if you were, um, let's say you had a seven-year-old daughter and uh, she she was a bit late for catching the school bus. And if she misses it, you're going to have to drive her to school and you'll be late for work. 
and but the school bus is across the street and she can make a run for it. The problem is you calculate there's a 5% chance she'll be run over and killed, all right? That's a small chance, but you won't do that because the consequences of losing her are way, way worse than the consequences of you getting into trouble for being late for work. So that's a no-brainer. Nobody in their right mind would have let, let the child run, all right? Well, the problem here is that there's somewhat larger than a 5% existential risk to civilization if we don't do anything about the climate change. And lots of scenarios have been painted. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, right? Food and water shortages have historically led to armed conflict. Now that can happen again, but now it's happening in a world armed with nuclear weapons. That's not a good thing. Um, I'd say there's a lot it's absolutely certain because we're already it's a, we're already there that we're incurring costs from increased damages owing to sea level rise, increased levels of storm activity, heat stress, and so forth. There's no question that we're incurring costs. Uh, but the thing that, that we really need to focus on are what I call the tail risks. And we should be prepared to spend, if we have to, spend a lot to avoid them. Uh, that's how we would do it if it were a short-term risk that's immediately apparent like the kid running for the school bus. The psychological problem is that the risks are evolving more slowly in time. So we tend to just say, let's put it off, but you can't do that for forever. So it's clear that we have to eventually give up fossil fuels, uh, unless some there are some extraordinary fines, we're gonna run out of them. Most of them in the order of a hundred years or less anyway. So it's a question of accelerating that. But I also think in a world where we had abundant cheap electricity um, that's green is a much better world. And we don't have to talk about giving up stuff, which is what environmentalists like to talk about. Um, if you wanna do that, fine, but we shouldn't force people into that position. I think we can have better lives if we can manage the transition all right. It didn't take us very long to go down the rabbit hole on what's at stake if we don't fix our energy problem before we ran into Joshua Goldstein. Joshua is a professor emeritus at American University and has quickly become a key player in this discussion, namely because he co-wrote the film Nuclear Now with Oliver Stone, and that was just released this month. The world economy is powered more than 80% by fossil fuels, and this was true 50 years ago, it was true 30 years ago, and it's still true today. The changes that have happened in that number are pretty trivial, like we go from 86% to 82% or something. And so it's just way too slow because according to the IPCC, the UN Agency on Climate Change, um, we need to be decarbonizing the grid by 2050, you know, less than 30 years to essentially get fossil fuels out of the world economy, not just the grid, the whole economy by 2050. It's just a huge task. It's never been done before, anything like that. And we're just not going in the direction of having that happen. Now we're backsliding and reopening coal plants and so forth. You know, As soon as the lights go out, people say, we, we want electricity, we'll deal with climate change later. So you need something that's reliable, something that's affordable because most of the carbon is coming from poorer countries now. You, 
it's, it doesn't work to just decarbonize Germany and California and the United States. Um, you need something that works in Indonesia, Vietnam, India, China, the big growing countries of the world. Um, and we just don't have that now. They're, they're, they need energy. Energy poverty is a, a terrible thing and they need to provide energy for their populations. And if there's something cheap and reliable and doable nuclear power, they'll do it. And if they don't have that, they'll just do it with coal. It's not like they're gonna stop using energy if they don't have a clean source. So at the moment, we don't have anything and they're still building a lot of coal plants. No, energy is the big driver of climate change, no doubt about it. Carry a manual. If you look at this, it actually is, is more complex than it might seem. It's not just a matter of, well, burning energy, burning fossil fuels uh, causes emissions of greenhouse gases. It also emits a lot of particulates. And this is extremely important for human welfare because uh, around 7 million people die around the world every year from inhalation of particulates that are a product of fossil fuel combustion. So we probably would want to transition away from that if we could, even if climate weren't on the table. There's another big and interesting issue that seldom talk about, another uh, way that energy enters climate is that um, if you look at what's going to happen to energy demand over the next few decades, there'll be very large increases coming from places like India and equatorial Africa. If those nations begin to lift themselves out of poverty, which a lot of us would like to see, of course. Um, but historically, at least in recent history, um, the elimination or reduction of poverty is always accompanied by very large increases in per capita energy growth. Now, here's the rub is that the other thing that happens when people uh, become less poor is they tend to have less children. That is, population growth declines. So population growth is a big driver of increasing emissions. So we're in this little this trap um, uh, that it's a bootstrapping trap, if you will, um, a catch-22. Uh, if we um, if we try to curtail emissions and in so doing, we deprive these countries of energy their population will continue to grow fast and that will continue to drive admissions up. So it's really imperative if we're really going to deal with this problem that we position ourselves to sell, if you will, to such countries, green energy that's affordable. And that's where all the emphasis should be. And I think for the most part is, can we do that? It's not just about decarbonizing ourselves in the industrial world. So far, we've focused more on the science. Let's turn to economics for a moment. We spoke to Pia Mullaney, who is senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking and also co-founding director of the Center of Innovation, Growth and Society. It's interesting to see how closely the rise in our standards of living has tracked the use of fossil fuels. The output energy ratio has grown at approximately the same rate as the output labor ratio, which is our labor productivity. And what we're seeing, particularly in the case of the energy response to the current world events, has reflected this. The pandemic led to a decline of almost 5% in greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this came as a result of deep declines in productivity, 
which leads us, of course, to the question of whether the only way we can bring down emissions to the 1.5% target that was set by the IPCC is by serious declines in growth. And if this is the case, who should bear that burden? So per capita emissions are much higher in the US than in the rest of the world, even though China is the biggest emitter. The global South is rightfully pointing out that it's unfair to ask them to bear this burden as they are at a much earlier stage in their development. But we're now at the point where mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions may require some sacrifices. We're risking serious damage if we don't do anything. At a purely economic level, it's becoming clear that the costs of extreme weather events are gonna be huge. Estimates suggest that the cost of natural catastrophes in 2022 topped $250 billion. The floods in Pakistan alone cost about $30 billion. So we can't afford to be complacent even if serious action is costly. And we need to dramatically increase our shift towards renewables such as wind and solar. We need to be thinking in terms of lifestyles, the way we approach production and consumption. We need to be thinking about regenerative agriculture. We need to also be focusing on things like improving health and education. Okay, so it's bleak. It feels bleak. And I'm a bit embarrassed. You see, I've considered myself up on the facts around this. On the other side of the aisle, they'd call me a bleeding heart. So this was supposed to be my platform. I've always supported programs around climate change, but I quickly realized this is far bigger than a personal political position. This is bigger than political parties. And this is certainly bigger than my household's rigorous bottle and can recycling efforts. But that's why we're honing in on energy. If we can tackle that problem, maybe the future won't be so bleak. It all leads me to the question of what we actually do about the issues covered in the show so far. Nick, you're our resident public policy guy. Do you have the answers? Well, like Mark and many of our listeners, I'm in the process of trying to figure it all out. And when it comes to energy policy, my go-to person is Jacopo Buongiorno, MIT Professor of Nuclear Science and Engineering and Director of the Centre for Advanced Nuclear Energy Systems. I, I have no regrets in the way in which I think the West has used energy because um, I, I think coal and fossil fuels were tremendously valuable. We wouldn't be here and we wouldn't, be in, we wouldn't have this amazing quality of life without, without those energy sources. But the time has come to sort of... Uh, move on to the next step in the evolution of the energy system where we use energy sources that don't put CO2 in the atmosphere. Let me say something else that I think is important. Even for our countries, which are well, very well off, um, we're going to have an issue. If we don't mitigate climate change, we're going to have an issue with adapting to it. And that adaptation is going to require a lot of energy. Think about coastal communities. We either abandon them or islands, or if we want to actually continue to have Miami or other beautiful cities, Venice on the coast, etc., you're going to have to protect them. Well, how do you protect them? Protect them the way the Netherlands have protected their land for a very long time, which means you have to create dams and dikes and barriers, but you need to continuously pump water out of your basin to make sure that the level of water is is acceptable for the cities. Well, pumping water requires energy. That's just an example. 
or think about areas that are going to become desertified. That's a process that has been going on for a very long time. And that's land that is attracted to uh, agriculture. So how are we going to make our food? Well, discussed it earlier. You could start to make it indoor, containerized, you know, hydroponic, aquaponic, uh, aquaculture, etc. Well, that process does not use just the energy coming from the sun like the fields do, uh, but it does require actually energy delivered in a certain in a certain amount, in a certain manner, and so on. So even just the adaptation to climate change uh, will require a lot more energy. I'm someone who's been brought up to, if you leave a room, you turn the light off. You conserve, you know, you switch the light off, you conserve energy, we need to, you know. But of course, when you look at that, even as individuals, we make, we all do this, we're only really scratching the surface of the issue. Is it not the case that the key to addressing climate change is about decarbonizing how we produce energy? Because if we take India, we take the, the growth, population growth in Nigeria, Africa, as we've been discussing, um, consumers are going to, there is demand, increasing demand for energy, electricity particularly. Uh, and the, the only way that we are going to face the climate change challenge that we face as humanity, as a planet, is by cleaning up the energy. The idea that people are going to reduce their consumption is just not, is, is, is not really realistic. I, I don't think it's one realistic, two fair. Um, and there is a very clear correlation between access and consumption, access to and consumption of energy and standards of living. And in, in the developed world, we have already climbed that sort of ladder and we are at the top. We consume a lot of energy. We have excellent standards of living. But as you said, uh, majority, at least half of the world is not there yet. And in order to get to the standards of living that we all like, and we should fairly desire also for the, the other half of humanity, uh, we need we need more energy. There is no doubt about this. The the, the notion that we're gonna um, energy conserve our way out of climate change is ludicrous. Just ludicrous. We actually need enormous amounts of energy on top of what we're already consuming. So I completely agree with what you just said a minute ago. And the question is, how do we start producing that energy in a manner, in a manner that, is, that, is, that is sustainable? And let's hear some more from Carrie Emanuel, who touches on the same themes as Jacopo and how to solve problems through collective action. Well, I think, you know, I, I really encounter this attitude among young people um, in my teaching career that's completely understandable. They wanna know what they as individuals can do about it. Can we change our light bulbs? Can we conserve energy? It's a very admirable sentiment. And of course, conservation helps. The sad fact is conservation alone isn't going to change much of anything. It, it's nice, I try to do that. Yes, I changed all my light bulbs. Um, what I think is, hard for people to do, particularly in this political environment, is to act collectively. And I always tell students, you know, you have to act collectively. We didn't solve previous problems, for example, the Vietnam War, 
by changing light bulbs or by doing something at the individual level. People had to get together and act collectively, and it ultimately worked. And then this is another game where people really have to organize to do this. Now, of course, you can come out railing against something like a war. That's fine, because all you really need to do is stop fighting the war in some cases. Um, but with energy, it's it's not so simple, right? We're not, nobody in their right mind is advocating that we give up energy. We, we don't want to do that. We couldn't do that. It wouldn't be good for us. So you have to organize yourself to do something positive, like transition to something. And there's where uh, collective action and technology have to become finely interwoven because you can't do it without the technology. The question is what the technology is. And one problem we have, at least in the United States, but you certainly see it in Europe as well, is the politicization of that technology. Everybody has their favorite magic bullet. Um, but the solution may not be the implementation of any one magic bullet. It might be some judicious combinations of technology. And picking up the baton on new technology, here's Guillermo Trotti. There's, and specifically with any of these issues, but specifically with energy, there's no single silver bullet that is going to solve the problem. And we are all starving for energy. I mean, energy is the key uh, mobilizer Right, of our civilization. So producing energy in a conscious matter is not, it's not just, it's not simple yet. Uh, we do have the means, we have the technologies there, but they need to move way faster and new technologies need to be invented. You know, whether it's more efficient, uh, all of it, <laughs> whether it's you know, a, a wind generator, whether it's photovoltaics, where there might be uh, a smaller modular nuclear reactor uh, and so on, they need to, you know, come up in terms of efficiency and numbers. Um, and, um, and so there is no, like, single solutions. That's the problem that we have right now. It's not like someone is going to come up with a magic wand and invent something that will solve all our problems. Uh, and that's where collaboration starts. Nothing happens by accident. It all happens by design, he says, pausing to smile before continuing to speak with faultless clarity and conviction. He's the planet's most prominent living architect and has been interviewed on several occasions over many decades. He needs only one take to nail his point. His soft voice, betraying more than a hint of his Mancunian origins, delivers unrivalled insight as we grill him on all manner of topics, including his redesign of the German Bundestag, works of infrastructure in London, Marseille and Barcelona. The result is to hold his audience captivated, hanging on each word. After a while, however, he pauses. Do you think we might open that door? he asks. Of course, I respond, still pinching myself that Lord Norman Foster has agreed to take part in our project. We're huddled around a couple of microphones in a windowless room. Sat to my right, on the other side of Foster to me, is Jacopo Buongiorno, whilst Gridlock director Mark Havener is to my left. Our conversation flows effortlessly. Each time I glance over at Mark, he nods approvingly, 
to indicate that we're capturing it all perfectly. Padded walls make the acoustics ideal for recording, but the heating system's broken and we can't lower the temperature. It doesn't throw Foster off track. We really need to improve the quality of life. So for 14% of humanity, they can't press a switch, get light, cook, heat. They don't have adequate shelter. They don't have access to clean water. So, uh, and at the moment, we consider quite rightly that the quality of our lives is at stake and being challenged by climate change. Uh, so really we need more energy. We need more clean energy. We need an abundance of energy. So really the challenge is how can we improve the quality of our lives for those who don't have the same level of quality that we in this room and in this part of the world take for granted? How can we anticipate and combat climate change and raise the standard of living for everybody without sacrifice? And the clue to that has to be energy. Well, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, so I am optimistic, but I've also said, uh, you know, my passion is uh, human spaceflight, getting people to Mars, becoming interplanetary, not to live on another planet, just to push ourselves, our spirits, our capabilities, our technology as far as we ever can. That's what Apollo told us. You know, it was about dreaming and pushing humanity for as far as we can. So I've always, my entire career has been passionate about expanding human spaceflight, searching for the evidence of life, finding life elsewhere, because that informs us on Earth. Now I spend the majority of my time thinking actually about the climate. You know, why? Because it's so urgent. I say I still have 15 years, you know, to get someone to, to Mars, but we have you know, the next five to seven years, if we're going to start to regenerate, if we're going to start to rebuild, if we're going to start uh, on this better path, even just to tip, tip the curve for climate, it's urgent now. Thank you to David Newman for that. And indeed, thank you to all of our wonderful contributors in this episode. Before we finish, let me turn to you, Mark, for some reflections and a look ahead at what our listeners can look forward to hearing in the next episode. Thanks, Rilake. If I can sum things up on the climate emergency, it is clear that we must act now. But what should we do? And specifically, do renewable energy resources such as wind, solar, hydro offer the way forward? These are the issues we will cover in the next episode of Gridlocked. Thanks, Mark. Sounds like a great show in prospect. I hope listeners can tune in for that. And now over to Nick to close us out. The manner in which our energy is produced distributed and consumed has created a climate emergency for our planet or rather for humanity the planet will ultimately be okay it can repair and replenish itself without us for humanity to secure its ongoing viability into the future current generations must act with urgency we must start by looking at our energy systems and considering the best sources and mixes for powering our lives going forward. Support for renewable energy has grown in recent years, but are renewables really the way forward? Is the creaking grid system of distributing energy fit for purpose, or does it need a booster jab? 
Or perhaps we should look beyond the grid to a new, an alternative way of powering our lives. We look forward to you joining us in the next episode of Gridlocked. The Gridlock theme music you are hearing now was created by Ewan Caborn. The podcast was produced by Renovata and can be found at gridlockpodcast.com.